On this episode, we'll be talking about kings, priests, and the law. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Live Through Jesus with Courtney Gilmore. I'll be reading all the scripture references for you, so you're free to just sit back, listen, and absorb, or you can grab your Bible and read along. Most of the time, I'll be reading from the New King James Version, but if I switch, I'll let you know. At the beginning of each episode, I'll introduce the titles, so if you want the entire study in writing, you can go to livethroughjesus.com and buy it for under $5. Each one will cover two to three months' worth of episodes, and once you buy, then it'll be immediately available for download. In addition to a little extra studying, it also allows you the benefit of some charts and keyword definitions, but it isn't necessary. Okay, so let's get started. This is episode 13, and today we'll be going over lesson 4 of the Abraham study. Last week we talked about how Abraham and his nephew Lot separated and the land that Lot chose to live in. A little time after they had separated, Lot ends up getting captured as the result of a battle. And you'll find this battle account in Genesis 14, but I'm not going to read all of it because it has a lot of names and places that are difficult to pronounce. So I'm just going to give you that account. And if you want to read it, you can go back and read this part by yourself. But the land where Lot lived was near the Salt Sea, and it had been under the service of the king of Elam for the last 12 years. This is an area in southwestern Iran. And in the 13th year, Sodom along with four other surrounding nations, rebelled against that king. And when they rebelled, the king of Elam gathered his troops along with three other ally nations, and they advanced towards the Salt Sea, conquering areas all along the way. And so these four kings in the east met these five kings of the west there in the valley of Siddim. And several of the people fell into the tar pits of the valley, but the rest ran to the hill country. And Lot and his family was taken captive. And someone got away and told Abram, and that's where we pick up the story in verse 14. It says, Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. So as you can see, Abram has built a large household by this point because he has 318 servants of his own that he takes with him to go and get these people back. They had to travel about 150 miles to catch up with these people, but then they defeated them and brought back all of the captive and the things that had been stolen. In verse 17, it says, The king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of this king of Elam and the kings that were with him. And then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. 
So after Abram has rescued these people, the king of Sodom is very grateful and he comes out to meet Abram, but the king of Salem is also there. And it seems that Abram doesn't give much attention to the king of Sodom at first. And he focuses on Melchizedek. Salem is the root word for shalom, which means peace. And it's also the ancient name for Jerusalem. So this is the king of the present-day Jerusalem, which we later find out is where Solomon builds the first stationary temple for the Lord. Now, it says that Melchizedek is both king and priest. And we know that he is the priest of the same God that Abram worships because it says he is the priest of the Most High God. And he immediately brings bread and wine and acknowledges Abram has been blessed by God. He praises God for this victory because he knows that Abram did not do this in his own power. He only had 318 men, and this was four nations. These kings had previously conquered giants. In verse 5 of chapter 14, it says that some of the people that they had defeated along their way were the Rephaim, which were giants. So it stands to reason that, humanly speaking, it would have been pretty difficult for these few men to be able to go back and rescue the captive without the supernatural help of God. Their victory was in direct relation to the favor that God had on Abram. Remember, Abram is blessed, and everyone that blesses him will be blessed, and everyone that curses him will be cursed. This has already been declared by the Lord, and so anyone that goes up against him is going to lose. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? God was for Abram. It didn't matter. No one could defeat him. But listen to this verse in Judges 6, 1. It says, The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Now we can see that if God is against us, then no one can be for us. We cannot do it in our own power. Lastly, look at Proverbs 21, 31. This just tells us that no matter how prepared we are, how good we are, how good our army is, whatever, it doesn't matter. It all really depends on the Lord. We think that a lot of these things are in our power, but they're not. It says, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. God is in charge. He is for his people. And if he's fighting for us, then no one can be against us. And if we have done evil in his sight and he so chooses to turn us over to others, then he can do that too. And Melchizedek knew this and he says, look at the victory that God just gave you. Blessed be the God of Most High for delivering your enemies into your hands. And then it says that Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything he had, which is the first mention of a tithe in the Bible. And notice who it's given to. It's given to the king priest of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place where many tithes will be received by priests for years to come, right? This is all foreshadow of the things to come. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Let's go ahead and read the end of this whenever he does end up talking to the king of Sodom. Verse 21, Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap. 
and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say that you have made Abram rich. Except only what the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men who went with me, Anner, Eskol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. So the king of Sodom's trying to thank him by telling him that he can keep all of the things that he rescued. But Abram's not willing to do that because he knows the evil of this place. And he is not going to accept anything from him because he wants all of his riches to come from the Lord. All of his things to be accredited to God so that no evil king can say he did anything for Abram. God gives Abram his blessings. He doesn't need anything from an evil country. Now, Melchizedek is mentioned in several other places of the Bible, and he's always compared to Jesus, who is our king priest. The only other king priest in the whole Bible, right? No one else is both king and priest. It's one or the other. Psalm 110 verse 4 is one of the places that it talks about this. And it says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And this is referring to Jesus being the priest forever. According to the same way that Melchizedek set in the beginning. The same precedent that Melchizedek set. So what it's saying is you're not the priest under the Levitical line as the rest of the priests are. You are the priest that comes from the precedent set by Melchizedek, which means you are just appointed by God. Melchizedek was just a priest that was appointed by God. He did not inherit his position, and neither did Jesus. Now, the other place that it discusses Melchizedek is in Hebrews 7, and that chapter is completely devoted to him. And so we're going to spend the remainder of our lesson here and talk a little bit more about Melchizedek because we only see him here in Genesis, but he's talked about further in the Bible because he's actually a very important foreshadowing of all the things to come. If you happen to buy the Abraham study, there's a chart in there that says high priests and kings, and it lists the differences and similarities between the Levites and Melchizedek and Jesus. So if you did buy that, you might want to look at it as we read through Hebrews 7. But if not, no big deal. We're going to talk about everything. Beginning in Hebrews 7.1, it says... For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So let's stop right there because there's a couple of things to talk about. It says that Melchizedek's name is translated king of righteousness. And so that's the literal meaning of Melchizedek. But then it says he's called the king of Salem, which means the king of peace because shalom means peace. And we know that these are also things that Jesus is. Jesus is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. So he's compared to Jesus in that way. And then he's also compared to Jesus because it says he did not have any father or mother. He had no genealogy. He didn't have any beginning of days or end of life, just like Jesus. 
Now, many people take this literally and they believe that this was not a man like Jesus, but that he was the pre-incarnate Jesus, that Jesus actually was Melchizedek and that Abram was giving tithes directly to Jesus. And others just believe that he's being compared to Jesus. I tend to believe that it's really just a comparison. And when it says that he has no genealogy, it doesn't mean that he actually doesn't have it, but that he doesn't have it recorded as the Levitical priests do. Because the Levitical priests literally have every single man written down. This man was priest, and then he died, and then his son became priest, and so on. And so I really just think that it means he didn't come from the genealogy of the Levites just as Jesus didn't. He was just appointed by God as the priest. And then it says he doesn't have any father or mother. Again, he doesn't have any father or mother listed, but really what it's talking about is just that he really kind of came out of nowhere. We don't know anything about him. We never hear about his birth. We never hear about his death. He's just there and then he's gone. But we do hear about Jesus's birth, even though we do also know that he is eternal and he had always been there. And that's what they're talking about. Jesus always was and always will be. He didn't begin really when he came to this earth. He had always existed along with the Lord. But what is important about Jesus is that where we said earlier, he came according to the order of Melchizedek and not the order of the Levites. He came from the line of Judah and Judah's line is the line of the kings, the line of King David, King Solomon, and so on. So Jesus came from the kingly line and he was appointed priest. All of the earthly priests had to follow the law and they had to sacrifice according to the law. And so by being born to the line of Judah, Jesus created a new priesthood. He did not have to follow the law. If he would have been in the line of Levi, then he would have been under the law. And we know that Jesus came to abolish the law. And so Jesus came to do away with the law and make a new covenant a new priesthood, offering a new sacrifice, allowing us to rely on his righteousness for salvation. So Jesus nor Melchizedek, either one inherited their position through the lineage of Levi or the law. They were appointed by God. Okay, so let's move on beginning in verse four. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brothers, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So what he's saying is that the only people that are supposed to be receiving tithes are from the lineage of Levi. So this man must be very important if Abraham is going to give him a tithe. Let's keep reading in verse 7. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So what he's saying is because Levi is from the lineage of Abraham, he also essentially gave tithes where later he is the one that receives them. It's 
continue in verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evidence that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest, who has come not according to the law of the fleshly commandment, but according to the power of the endless life. For he testifies, you are priests forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's what we read in Psalm 110.4. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of the weakness and its unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So this just talks further about what I was saying earlier about how it's important that Jesus was actually from the line of Judah and not the line of Levi because he would have been under the law. And it says by him being born to the line of Judah, he can do things differently. The law really was never making anything perfect. And so Jesus came from the kingly line and offered himself as the sacrifice. Let's keep reading verse 20. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord is sworn and will not relent. You are priests forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. So verse 19 explains that the law is what separates us from God, but Jesus created a better hope that draws us near to him. And then verse 21 says that God actually made the oath for Jesus in Psalm 110.4 whenever he says that Jesus will be the priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So he makes the oath of the priesthood of Jesus, which guarantees this better covenant. Let's read in verse 23. Also there were many priests, because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So he's saying the Levitical priests, they didn't continue forever. They ended up dying and then another priest would have to come and then the priesthood changes. But that doesn't happen with Jesus because Jesus is forever. So his priesthood is unchangeable and continuous. That's how he's able to save everyone. Because even though he died before we were born, he made the sacrifice that lasts forever because he lasts forever. He didn't die as the other priests. He is living in heaven right now, making intercession for us. That's what it says. He always lives to make intercession. It's believed that there were 83 or 84 high priests between the time of Aaron when the Levitical priesthood began and the time that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. But since Jesus didn't come from their order and he never died, he's the last high priest. Let's read the rest of this. Verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us, 
who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Who doesn't need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the sins of the people? For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the son who has been perfected forever." So you see, the Levitical priests, they were human sinners, and eventually they died, and they offered sacrifices also for themselves because they were also sinners. So that's why it's saying that Jesus is the high priest that is fitting for us because he's holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate completely from sinners because he doesn't sin. When he makes sacrifice, he isn't sacrificing for himself at all. He's only sacrificing on behalf of all the rest of us. That's the reason that none of the other sacrifices were sufficient because if Jesus were to die for his own sins, then he would just be paying the price for his own sin. But if he dies for our sin, then he can pay our price. Then he can take the place of us. And then notice also in verse 27, it says, Jesus doesn't need to daily offer these sacrifices just like the Levitical priests did. They had to do this over and over and over and over again. But Jesus did it once for all when he offered himself. He didn't have to do it over and over again because he conquered sin completely. He made sacrifice completely. The animals could never be a perfect sacrifice because they don't have sin themselves. And the priests could not make a perfect sacrifice because they had sins of themselves. But Jesus never did sin. And so his sacrifice was sinless and his offering of it was sinless. He was able to offer it once for all. These priests were just people with their own weaknesses. And so since Jesus wasn't born through that line, he wasn't bound by the law as they were. The law separates the people from God, but Jesus brings us to him. Notice also something that we didn't bring up earlier is that the priest offered animals as sacrifice. Melchizedek offered the bread and the wine to Abram. And later when Jesus does the Passover with the disciples, he says that the bread is his body and the wine is his blood that's poured out for them. And so Jesus becomes the bread and the wine. Melchizedek offers it. Jesus is that. Jesus is all-encompassing. He is abolisher of the law. He is the king of this earth. He is the priest that offered the sacrifice for us, and he is the sacrifice. Not only is he the king, not only is he the priest, but he's the sacrifice. Jesus is all things. He gives us everything we need. How wonderful it is that God gave us Jesus as our priest-king sacrifice. Let that sink in for a little bit, you know? How can you not glorify him for that? All-encompassing everything we need. So why didn't Jesus just come in the beginning? Because we needed this picture, right? All of the Old Testament is a foreshadow of what's to come. It's letting us see, this is what it used to be like. This is what I'm giving you instead. Isn't this so much better? It's also a visual for us because we actually need to see these priests offering these sacrifices daily. We need to see the sacrifice that the people were having to give up. And so Melchizedek is just another foreshadowing, giving us just a small little glimpse of our priest king that we will find when Jesus comes. Keep that in mind this week. 
give glory and honor and praise to your priest king sacrifice. Next week, we'll talk further about Abram's children. And if you don't know the story, it's a mess. There's a lot that Abram doesn't understand. And he has to wait patiently on the Lord, but it is not easy. So make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss that episode. Feel free to email me. My email address is Courtney at livethroughjesus.com. Thanks and have a good day. Mm -hmm.